God didn't create you to be average. He created you to stand out, to go beyond the norm, to leave your mark on this generation. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfil the destiny he has laid out for us. Our lives will be successful and healthy if we walk in the light of Jesus' redemption with faith. When you start your day, you need to set your mind for victory. Set your mind for success. Now, full disclaimer, uh, those words are not my own. You might be glad to know. Uh, They are all quotes from Christian leaders uh, who lead big churches and have big book deals. Uh, You can find those books in Kurong, in fact. They describe the Christian life as one of strength and victory. Of success in your relationships, your finances, your career, your health. Of victorious Christian living. A life where we're well respected by the world around us. It's portrayed as the Christian life as it should be. But we've got to ask, is that really the case? Is that what the Christian life is supposed to look like? Uh, Today we're looking at a part of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 4, where the Apostle Paul is addressing a group of Christians in the first century AD, Christians in the Roman city of Corinth, who were all about victorious Christian living. They lived in a culture that that uh, that highly valued uh, being respected and and, and honoured by those around them where people wanted to be well thought of and wise and intelligent and influential. If you think about it, it has a lot of similarities to our culture in those regards today, doesn't it? Uh, So as we see what uh, Paul has to say to them, uh, it's got a lot to teach us about what our Christian lives today uh, should look like and how we'll be thought of by the culture around us. Now, if you've got that uh, handout in front of you or a Bible there, have a look. Uh, Scan your eyes over verses 1 to 7, which we looked at briefly last week. Uh, Those verses are summing up the last section of Paul's argument where he warned the Corinthians about boasting and taking pride in human leaders. Uh, You see he mentioned Paul and Apollos. We looked at that in depth last week. These different uh, leaders that they were tempted to see as celebrities. But what did Paul say to them? He said, no, you should see us instead as servants. Servants who are accountable to God's judgment based on whether or not we've been faithful, not based on uh, human judgment and how outwardly impressive they are. So that in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4, 7 was Paul addressing their desire for humanly impressive leaders. But then from verse 8, a subtle shift occurs And Paul uh, changes his focus to the Corinthians' desire to be humanly impressive themselves. They didn't just want leaders who are wise in the eyes of the world. They wanted to be that themselves as well. And they thought they had made it. They were impressive. They had spiritual gifts. They had impressive teachers. They were well thought of. They thought they'd made it. And so check out what he says to them. Have a look in your Bibles with me at verse 8. Uh, Paul says, uh, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You've begun to reign. And that without us. 
How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. Paul's sarcasm here is biting. He's saying, look at you Corinthians strutting about like kings, like you're ruling the world, like you've made it. How I wish you really had made it, Corinthians, so that we apostles might get, uh, might get to bask a bit in your afterglow. Uh, if you've ever uh, you know, used sarcasm and someone said, oh, that's the lowest form of wit, you can say, no, sarcasm is biblical. Uh, here Paul is using it. And he goes on to point out what a wide chasm there is between the, the lives that the Corinthians were pursuing, on the one hand, victory, approval, success, and the way that he and the other apostles were living. Uh, check it out. You can see it there in your Bibles in verse 9. He says, For it seems to me that God has put us to p- dis- apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. And now in the ancient world, when a, a general won a great victory, they would be awarded a triumph. A triumph was a, a big parade, a procession, where the general and his armies would come through the city at the head of the procession and people would cheer for them and, uh, and applaud them. But at the end of the procession came the captured prisoners. They wouldn't get applause, of course. They would be spat on and mocked, laughed at. They're defeated, they're humiliated. And the procession would lead them all the way to the arena where they would be executed brutally as the crowds watched on in delight. It's a pretty brutal reality. And that says, Paul says that's what his experience of being an apostle has been like. Being mocked and mistreated. And yet the Corinthians were here trying to live their best life now. Things are going great. Have a look in your Bibles with me from verse 10 where Paul just highlights this contrast. Uh, from, verse, um, from verse 10, he says, We apostles are considered fools for Christ, but oh, you Corinthians are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You Corinthians are honoured, but we apostles are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. That's a pretty confronting picture, isn't it? But that was the reality for Paul. You can read the book of Acts to see more of how he experienced these things. The word word scum there in verse 13 refers to the gross, encrusted, burnt stuff that you might scrape uh, off the, the bottom of an old pot. I, when I was a, a uni student, I worked part-time in a burger restaurant. And man, at the end of the day, the, the fryers and the grill, it was all just so gross. Uh, and so it would be my job to, to scrape all that off and clean it. And let me tell you, I never once took that burnt scum home as a souvenir. I never once put it on, on the shelf and said, this is just something I cherish. I've got great memories Uh, associated with it. No, it was disgusting. You would just throw it straight in the bin. That was all it was good for. And Paul says that is how the world was treating him and the other apostles. Good for nothing but to be thrown out. 
Paul's saying, look, you Corinthians think you can have this great life, that you can have it all now, that you can follow Jesus while also pursuing wealth and success and popularity and worldly approval. But Paul's saying that's not what a real Christian life looks like. And there are many Christians today who fall into that exact same trap. It's not just the shiny uh, televangelists in America like Joel Osteen that you need to watch out for. It's here in Perth too. It's, it's local. Uh, the following paragraph is part of a statement of faith of a large church here in Perth. This is one of the elements uh, that it says. We believe we believe that without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's, that's good. That's taken straight from the Bible. The atonement provides salvation, healing and prosperity for the believer. We are redeemed from the curse of the law, which includes poverty, sickness and spiritual death. Our lives will be successful and healthy if we walk in the light of this redemption with faith in God's word and in answer to believing prayer. Now, let's just be clear what this is saying. It's saying that the atonement, that's Jesus' atoning work on the cross uh, to, to save us, provides what? Salvation, but also what else? It also provides healing and prosperity for the believer, apparently. Now, the New Testament, I would contend, uh, come chat to me afterwards if you want to look into this more, the New Testament doesn't teach that at all. That's some big red flags right there. Then it goes on to say that our lives will be successful and healthy if we walk in light of this redemption with faith. Just have enough faith. Just believe hard enough. If your life's going bad, it's because you're not having enough faith. Your life will be successful if you do and prosperous and healthy. And Look, it sounds pretty good, right? Like, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that kind of life? I mean, if only someone had thought to tell the Apostle Paul, right? Because, man, he must have missed the memo. How did he describe himself in verses 11 to 13? Fools, weak, hungry, thirsty, in rags, brutally treated, homeless, cursed by the world around them, persecuted, slandered, scum of the earth... Gosh, Paul, that doesn't sound very successful and healthy. Paul, maybe you don't have enough faith. And it's not just Paul. Notice his language of we throughout this passage. It's him and the other apostles and early church leaders as well. Paul is pointing out there's a huge chasm between the expectations of a victorious Christian life on the one hand and the lived reality of the apostles and leaders in the early church on the other. There's a huge chasm there. The contrast between the two couldn't be more striking. And Paul's even using sarcasm to try wedge home just how different these two are. All right, here's, uh, we don't, obviously don't have pictures from back then. Here's um, someone's drawing uh, of a rendition of Paul being persecuted, mocked and beaten as he often was in his life. Uh, but hold on, Paul, don't worry. Our lives will be successful and healthy if we walk in light of this redemption with faith. Or here's Stephen, the first Christian martyr, who was stoned to death in Act 6. I cheer up, Stephen, though. When you start your day, you need to set your mind for victory. Set your mind for success. Here's the Apostle Paul, uh, sorry, Peter, rather, who was crucified upside down. This is Peter. A brutal way to die. But come on, Peter. Don't wait around discouraged. Start making plans for abundance and restoration. 
Start talking like it's going to happen. Just name it, claim it, believe it. You see, in this passage, Paul wants the contrast to be as striking as possible. I hope you're feeling that contrast. Because suddenly, all that talk of success and victory starts to sound pretty hollow and worldly, doesn't it? When you put the contrast like that, between what the apostles were actually facing. But hold up for a moment here, because you can imagine someone at this point raising a pretty understandable objection. Someone might say, well, look, maybe you are... Maybe, Paul, you and the other apostles are having a rough go of it, but that doesn't mean that other Christians should have to live that way too. And that's actually a question that's worth grappling with. Is this tough lifestyle just for the apostles? A chosen few who who live the hard Christian life, but the rest of us can pursue a comfortable Christianity? Well, uh, check out how Paul speaks to this exact question. Have a look in your Bibles with me for 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 to 17. Paul says to the Corinthians, I'm, I'm, not, I'm writing this not to shame you, Corinthians, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. You see, Paul's saying here, I know these are some strong words, but I want you to know that it's coming from a place of fatherly care. I'm actually concerned for you. I want what's best for you. He's, He's warning them as dearly beloved children. And rightly so, because although they might have countless others who input into their Christian growth, and we all do at different times in our life, don't we? We learn from lots of other people who help us grow in Christ. There's something unique about Paul's role in their life because in Christ Jesus, he became their father through the gospel. I remember we we saw this last week. Uh, He was there in the birthing chamber, as it were, when this new Christian community was born. They heard the life-giving gospel of Jesus through him. And so as a loving father who's concerned for them and wants what's best for them, what does he say in verse 16? He's just laid out his really hard lifestyle that he lives, and then he says, therefore I urge you to imitate me. He's saying a life of being looked down upon by the world is not unique to the apostles. It's something for all Christians. And check out what he says in verse 17, just in case someone said, well, look, he's saying this to the Corinthians, but maybe it doesn't apply more broadly than just what this one particular church. No, verse 17, Timothy's going to remind them of what? His way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere, in every church. That same gospel that he preached everywhere, he's saying there's a certain kind of life that agrees with it. If you think of uh, the truth of the gospel, it's like a, a, a jigsaw puzzle. There's a certain kind of life that fits with it. And there's certain other kinds of lives that just don't match. They don't make any sense. A way of life that agrees with the gospel. You might call it a cross-shaped life. That's the shape of the puzzle piece, a cross-shaped life. Uh, Because think about it, think about what the message of the gospel actually is. Let's just look at what Paul's already told them in Corinthians. Um, If you've got a a Bible there, you can flip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But if not, I've got it up on the screen for you there. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 17 to 18 Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, 
not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to, for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So notice he uses uh, the phrase the gospel and the message of the cross interchangeably in this context. It, it, that's what the gospel is. It's the message of Jesus being rejected by the world around him. Being arrested, mocked, beaten, spat on, laughed at, looked down upon. And ultimately, we know Jesus was killed on a rugged cross. That's the gospel. The gospel tells us that Jesus didn't seek a life of prosperity and health and success. Jesus didn't seek his best life now. He didn't seek a life of winning the approval of others and being well thought of. If he did, he went about it pretty badly. No, Jesus willingly pursued a life of self-sacrificial love for others, culminating in his death on a cross to take the penalty for our sins. Knowing that even as he did, he would be seen as weak and foolish. Which means anyone who follows Jesus truly and faithfully will also be seen by the world as weak and foolish. Jesus himself said in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, Jesus says, for they do not know the one who sent me. So you see, Paul and the other apostles didn't just make this stuff up. In 1 Corinthians 4, they got it straight from Jesus himself. Is this tough lifestyle of being looked down upon just for the apostles? No, it's, it's for all Christians everywhere. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, Anyone who comes after me must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. It's a cross-shaped life. That is what the true Christian life looks like. And if that is true, then there are some things that we have to guard ourselves against. Uh, some, some errors that distort what the Christian life should look like that disagree with the gospel. That, that the puzzle pieces don't match. So let's briefly look at three of them. Uh, the first thing to, to guard yourself against is prosperity Christianity. Now, I've already flagged this, but it's important to make it explicit. Uh, the prosperity gospel teaches that Jesus not only saves us from sin, but also promises us success, health, and wealth in this life. Uh, but as we've already seen today, this is a false teaching. The puzzle pieces do not match. It does not agree with the gospel of the apostles that they proclaimed about Jesus himself and how he lived. This is dangerous, so watch out. There are books on the shelf in Kurung that teach this stuff. We've mentioned Joel Osteen, Your Best Life Now. Run away from that kind of teaching. Joseph Prince is another prosperity teacher that I've seen in the top ten books list at Kurung. 
Uh, look at this. It's almost like he took the title of his book from 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul's like, already you've begun to reign. Destined to reign. Red flags. The secret to effortless success, wholeness, and victorious living. And it's not just these authors from overseas. If your church teaches that you should be experiencing increase and success and health, some of them are very overt about it. If you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. Some of them are more subtle, and they just talk about experiencing God's blessing in your career as as something that's a normal part of the Christian life if you uh, have enough faith and are, are generous enough. If your church is teaching those things, you need to think very carefully about the church that you're going to and whether they're actually preaching the gospel that's found in the New Testament or something that's altogether different. If that's something that raises questions for you, please do come uh, chat to me or one of the other staff workers or a small group leader afterwards because it's really serious. That's the first thing to guard against, prosperity Christianity. Second, guard yourself against liberal Christianity. What do I mean by liberal Christianity? Uh, This is not an exhaustive definition, but one uh, uh, helpful functional way to think about it is that out of a desire to win the approval of the world and the culture around us, liberal Christianity jettisons unpopular teachings from the Bible to update Christianity and keep it relevant. They say, oh, Jesus' teaching on love your neighbour and care for the poor, great, uh, we'll keep that. Uh, But Jesus' teaching on sexuality... Oh, that's kind of exclusive. Let, let's cut that out. Uh, the stuff about miracles and rising from the dead, oh, secular people might not like that. They might think it's a little bit uh, you know, superstitious. So let's cut that out too. Now that might seem crazy, but there are a lot of churches even here in Perth today uh, that, that, won't, that don't agree that the miracles of Jesus even took place. But sexuality is a big one. Now, think for a moment about what is motivating liberal Christianity. They want the approval of the world around them. They want to seem more palatable, make the gospel more attractive. It's the same danger the Corinthians were falling into, taken to its extreme. The Corinthians didn't want to be seen as foolish by the world around them. They wanted to be seen as wise and clever. But 1 Corinthians 4 has shown us what a dangerous impulse that is for a Christian. Because it pulls you away from the true gospel of Jesus And that is deadly. The problem with liberal Christianity is that it's not Christianity. You can't pick and choose bits of Jesus that you like. He's a package deal. As Hudson Taylor rightly put it, Jesus is either Lord of all or he is not your Lord at all. He is either king in your life who calls the shots or if you're picking and choosing stuff, the crown's on your head. You're king, you're in charge. So be on your guard against liberal Christianity. That's the second one. Thirdly, be on your guard against comfortable Christianity. And this one's important to look at because, see, maybe you look at prosperity Christianity and liberal Christianity and think, yeah, those are dangerous and wrong. I would never fall for that. I'm in a solid Bible teaching church. And look, if that's true, praise God, that's awesome. But don't think that that means that you're immune from the same danger as the Corinthians, just in a more subtle form. Sure, you might not think that God promises you wealth and success in your career as a reward for having enough faith. But perhaps you're still pursuing wealth and success in your career anyway. 
you're pursuing the exact same thing, you're just trying to get it by your own hard work rather than receive it as a gift by faith. Or you might think, oh, I'd never jettison the unpopular truths of Christianity. But perhaps you're willing to stay silent and quiet about those truths so that others don't look down on you or think that you're an idiot. Because people do when they realise you're a Christian. It could be that you just want to have a nice, respectable, middle-class life. Comfortable Christianity. Sounds nice. I must admit, I'm very attracted by that. But is that a cross-shaped life? Is that the way of life that agrees with the gospel? Now, I'm not saying that all of us need to try to go out and get persecuted. Uh, We are very blessed to live in a time and culture where living faithfully for Jesus won't get you in prison, put you in prison or killed. We should be extremely grateful for that and continue to work and pray to support our brothers and sisters who do live in places where that's the reality. But even here in the West, it's still true that faithfully following Jesus will get you looked down upon and seen as a fool, or perhaps worse. If you hold firmly to the teachings of Jesus about sexuality, things like what Jesus says in Matthew 19, which is that the only context in which God approves of sex is within the lifelong marriage of a man and a woman, if you say things like that, you will be shamed. You'll be seen as the scum of the earth, a bigot, a fool. And so if you're anything like me, it's so much easier to just not talk about it. Sure, I won't jettison that belief, but I'll just keep it private so that no one looks down on me. So that I can have my cake and eat it too. I can believe in Jesus, but not have to face the uncomfortable reality of the world's disapproval like Jesus did. I find that a challenging question to ask myself, and all of us should ask that of ourselves. Is that a trap that you're falling into? Increasingly, not just now as uni students, but also as we head into the workforce... We're going to have to make decisions about whether or not we speak up and hold firm to the teachings of Jesus. Whether we opt for comfortable Christianity or whether we embrace a cross-shaped life and are actually willing to face ridicule and real costs for following Jesus. Let's not sugarcoat it. Living a cross-shaped lifestyle is actually really hard. For some of us, following Jesus will cost us friends. For some of us, It will cost us a romantic relationship. For others, it will cost us reputation. For others, it will cost us our job. I I know of Christians here in Australia who have already been either passed over for a promotion or even forced out of a job altogether because their views as a Christian don't line up with the company's so-called inclusive policy. Kind of ironic, but there it is. That's a reality that many of us are going to have to face. Depending on, what, on your course and what you're studying, some of this may already be coming up for you as you look at the course material and what's um, required of you in your future field of work. And the question is, going to become increasingly real, but it's already true now, are we willing to embrace those costs for the sake of faithfully following Jesus? Are we willing to embrace a cross-shaped life, be seen as the scum of the earth, Now, again, doing this is actually really hard. Don't hear me just 
you know, it's easy to talk about it. It's hard to actually do it, isn't it? I find this challenging. Choosing to follow Jesus in the areas of life that will hurt, that's not easy. And so that brings us to a final question, which is what will motivate us to live this way in the face of the world's disapproval? What will strengthen us to live faithfully to Jesus, even when it means looked down upon by those around us? What's going to give us the resolve, the fortitude to make those decisions? Um, Well, have a look in your Bibles with me at 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 5, uh, where we see one of the ways that Paul finds strength to face the crazy sufferings that he went through, and yet he kept standing firm in Jesus. Have a look, verse 3. Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. What is it that strengthens Paul in the face of the world's disapproval? Even the disapproval of worldly Christians around him who are judging things by human standards? It's because he knows that one day the Lord Jesus is going to come back and every human is going to stand before him. And on that day, every Christian who has been judged by the world and looked down upon and treated like the scum of the earth is going to be vindicated by the risen Lord Jesus. It's the knowledge that it is the Lord alone who has the right to judge us. And that while the world may disapprove of us now and think that we're an idiot for following Jesus and that we're just given to blind faith and, and they may just think we're so stupid, they may disapprove. But on the last day, it says, each will receive their praise from God. And if you have the approval of the God of the universe, who cares about the disapproval of others? And you know, right now, let's name the reality. The disapproval of those around us can seem so loud. It feels so important. And God's approval can feel so distant and theoretical. But on that final day, we're going to look back and think, who cares whether or not my fickle culture happened to approve or not? God's approval will be all that matters. You know, it's kind of like, it's so hard to help a student who's like in the thick of year nine... When you're in year nine or thereabouts, the approval of those around you, of your peers, feels like it matters so much. But when you're out as an adult, you look back and you think, no, in the scheme of things, their approval didn't count for anything. And that is just a tiny taste of what it's going to be like. Well, we're going to stand there on that day and all those things that the world thought you were an idiot for, in those very moments where you make decisions that cost you for the sake of Jesus... God is looking down and his approval is on you in Christ. Who cares how comfortable my short life on earth is when I've got eternity in the presence of Jesus to look forward to? The more we can fix our eyes on that future reality, the more it's going to empower us to face human disapproval in the present.
So don't fall for the lie of so-called victorious Christian living. And don't fall for the more subtle lure of comfortable Christianity. The real Christian life is cross-shaped. And it involves suffering now, but glory later.